Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 40. Passages on the insert in your bulletin, if you prefer that. The last 12, almost 12 chapters of Genesis are devoted to recounting the events around Joseph's life, which are used by God to sustain Israel. So they are, we end Genesis with Israel uh, in Egypt. This sets the stage for what comes next in Exodus and beyond. But to our chapter today in view, chapter 40, I remember some of the background as far as the timeline goes. Joseph was sold into slavery when he was about 17 years old, sold by his own brothers. He was 30 when he became the vice regent in Egypt, shortly after this passage in chapter 41. So we know there's a 12-plus year span between the time he was in slavery and the time he became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Chapter 40 occurs two years before he starts to reign with Pharaoh. So this means he's about 28 years old in prison. Several years probably have been spent in prison. We don't know how long. We know the 12-year span. Part of it was a slave in Potiphar's house. Part of it was as a prisoner. But he has two years further to go after this episode we have before us. It was Barnhouse who said so wonderfully, God moves the very stars in their orbits to work His will. And He rules the passions of men and the decisions of those in authority to accomplish what He had planned. We keep this in mind as we now read God's holy word. This is Genesis 40. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me this kind, the, the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. 
When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, your your word is living and it is active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of our souls and our spirits, to the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. That's your word. And please pierce our hearts with your truth and mold our thinking and our living accordingly. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. It turns out that these years that Joseph spends in both slavery and now in the prison, all of this is fine-tuning Joseph for what God will have him to do next. But Joseph doesn't know all of that in particular. Now, he certainly believed God's revelation to him. He believed the two dreams he had back when he was in his father's house. He believed these were from God. He went to his brothers to tell them about it because he thought this was truly a word from God. And it seemed obvious enough what it meant, that he would in some way rule over his family. Even the brothers understood clearly what the dream meant. He didn't know what the significance was. God knew, and God had plans for him to further prepare him for that. Though he knows this to be true, almost 10 years have gone by now. Here he is in the prison. It couldn't get much worse. He was essentially wasting away there. Certainly, even though he believed God's word from those years past when he was 17, he had to think to himself many days, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe it's going to be that I just waste away in this prison. But God was refining Joseph, even though it didn't feel like it at all. As you look at your own life and think back at different epochs or periods or events, can you see how God was using those events to shape you into the person you are today? Maybe it was some through, through some health emergency. God shaped you into who you are now, deepened your faith and your trust in Him. Maybe it was through a family crisis. Maybe it was a traumatic job change. It could have been an accident of some sort or in the life of someone you love. Maybe a devastating personal loss, a financial calamity, something at the moment that that made you feel like God wasn't there. There was no purpose to it. But then in hindsight, as you see it now much later, you can recognize why God had this come to pass in your life. Maybe you would never go back there, but you also wouldn't get rid of that epic either because you see now what it has meant. Maybe it's a mental or an emotional struggle that was paralyzing. Periods of time that seem to last for so long, but now they're past. Maybe you're in the middle of one, and you're wondering to yourself, has God remembered me? Who Joseph will become is being shaped in the prison 
Make no mistake about this. One of the key features of God's work in Joseph's life was to continue to grow him in trust, in dependence upon him. God is teaching Joseph to trust in his promises. He's shaping Joseph into a man who believes God's word above all else, no matter what the masses are saying, what the crowds are saying, that God's word is wholly true and trustworthy. Ultimately, what sustained Joseph through this trial period of his life was his trust in God's promises, his sure promises. God's first word to Joseph came in the form of two dreams about his future that he had when he was 17. He spoke the word of God aloud to his brothers, and that caused him to be in a pit, first to Potiphar's house and now in the prison. But Joseph still believed God's word was true. Yet, when would it come true? All these years later, in prison now, a far distance from where his dreams once were had, here he is in this new pit. But God sends the two most unlikely characters you can imagine into his life to remind him of something important, a butler and a baker. You see, it's important for Joseph to be renewed in this truth that we should be renewed in again. The events of the future belong to God. And since they do, his word, the one who knows the future, who directs the paths, his word is trustworthy now, no matter what it looks like when we look around us. God's hand was continually upon Joseph from the empty cistern to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house to the prison. God was with Joseph, and Joseph on most days really knew this. It was hard for him, but he was nevertheless sure that Yahweh is the God of all events, the God of the future. And because of that, anything Yahweh says to him, he can trust. I want you to see first how God's word or this revelation that he gives Jacob in this particular occasion, it comes in the form of a dream, but it's God's special revelation nevertheless, and it has application for us. You know, God's word in this story comes in the form of a specialized dream given to the two servants of Pharaoh. One of the servants, wa- servants was a cupbearer uh, or a butler. This was Pharaoh's personal attendant. It didn't just mean he followed Pharaoh around with, with a, a bottle of wine. It means more than that. It means he spent a lot of personal time with him. In antiquity, we see the cupbearer is just a synonym for close personal advisor. He has the ear of Pharaoh. He's with him a lot. The other is the baker. This person would be responsible for providing Pharaoh with bread and baked goods and cakes. And this is some of the lavish living of the Egyptians, but even the common Egyptian would have been aware of multiple kinds of cakes and breads. Egypt was famous for this. So you have the man who's providing and taking care of the drink, and the man who's providing and taking care of the food. They're with Pharaoh a lot. We don't know what happened, but they're on the outs with Pharaoh. Some offense leads them to prison, which is a scary place to be, to draw the ire of Pharaoh. Their future was in the balance, no doubt. Their life, their lives were on the line. But God speaks through them in the form of dreams. Look at verse 5. In one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. 
The dreams of the cupbearer and the butler were revelations from God. They were God's word about the immediate future. We might label these particular revelations special revelations, specialized, personal revelations from God. There are two ways that God reveals Himself. The first is through nature. We call this general revelation. You can see it generally in all that's around us in the natural world. The second is through special revelation or personal communication given, and we see that in Scripture as it unfolds in the story of redemption before us. General revelation comes primarily through the natural world and our observation of it. Any person can see that there must be someone behind everything that's created. We could see God's fingerprints all over the natural world. We could see there's a designer of nature who is God. And you look at any aspect of it. Look at the bee and what the bee does in the hive. Just look at the bee for that matter and all the different kinds of bees there are. Look at the texture of a green leaf in the process of photosynthesis that's designed to happen, that we benefit from when plants do what they're created to do. We can see there's a creator behind this. Uh, Notice the ants in all they're busy to do. They seem to always know what is the next thing for them. How about the cicadas at this time of the year? I had one at the door of my office when I came in this morning thinking, that cicada is going to drop some eggs in the ground that could be there seven to ten years before they came back up, all by the design of God. Who could rationally look at that and say there's not a designer behind it? Gaze upon the vast oceans of the earth and all the creatures that reside there, creatures we know we'll never put our eyes on, but are just there for the glory of God. The same with outer space, how humbling that is, the millions and the millions and the millions of stars that will always most likely escape any grasp of mankind. Everything around us in the natural world testifies to the reality of God. That's a rational conclusion. That's not a leap of faith at all. This is why the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It's saying there's a God. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But because of sin... Our interpretation is skewed. We're unable to read enough from general revelation. It's not enough for us to know Him personally, what His will is for us, how we ought to live in this creation of His. We need something more from Him. But make no mistake, general revelation makes us responsible. There is a God. We know there's a God. And now we are accountable to Him. This is essentially what Paul says in Romans For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse before God. And general revelation makes that apparent and clear. It solidifies it. We might rightly feel, though, there's something out of whack but we would have no idea what to do about it if it were not for God personally and specially revealing that to us. That's what special revelation is. We need special revelation to know God personally and particularly. Over the course of history, God specially revealed Himself. That's what we've been studying through Genesis. We've seen it happen in different ways where God would speak audibly to Adam and Eve and others, 
He would send angels to speak sometimes, his word, his will. He would work miracles that would testify to his will. He would give dreams and visions at times. We see this in the case of Joseph. We'll see it again in the Old Testament. He reveals himself through animals speaking at certain times, bushes burning, and mountains trembling with smoke and lightning. This is the development of the finality of God's special revelation to us through the prophets. The prophetic and the apostolic witnesses eventually give a public written voice to God's will. By God's Spirit, the prophets and the apostles, they're guided to write this down. Moses writes down what's been happening to this point. All the special revelation recorded in the Old Testament, it builds and builds, ultimately revealing Jesus Christ. All of it, even this, these two dreams by the cupbearer and the baker, they are part of the buildup to manifest Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews quantifies all this special revelation, saying, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. All of it was built up to the person of Christ. Now we have the revelation of God Himself in the person of Christ. In the apostles, they write by the inspiration of the Spirit, special revelation that interprets for us how Jesus has fulfilled all the special revelation that had built up to that point, and that's our Bible. That's what we have before us. Complete is the special revelation of God to His people in His Word. It's not to say that God doesn't on rare occasions uh, move in miraculous ways to point someone in a certain direction or, or give a person an understanding they wouldn't have understood it before. But he's not adding to that special revelation to the people of God that we have in the Scriptures. Now, having said all of that, Joseph is living before Moses. He's living in this epic where there are these ways God expresses His will that are different from what we see now. God specially reveals himself to Joseph, first back in his father's house with those two dreams he had. And now, ten years later, here he is in the prison. He's the audience for someone else's dreams, and he knew it was God's special revelation, and he knew what the dreams meant. Now, let's move to the interpretation of the dreams. This is Joseph interpreting God's word. Uh, These two Egyptians don't know what it means. But Yahweh is with Joseph. Now, keep in mind, across ancient history, there were professional dream interpreters in kings' houses. There are whole books called books of dreams that the Egyptians are famous for. And usually these individuals were flamboyant and ostentatious. Uh, They would say they can interpret your dreams even for money. They can interpret them even better. This is the way of Egypt. And this is the way that the cupbearer and the baker were thinking. Man, there's nobody here to interpret. We're having these dreams, but there's no one to interpret. They're thinking like that. But that's not the way of Joseph. Look at verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, 
We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Now, please pay very close attention to the second part of verse 8. It really helps us understand the whole of what's happening here. And Joseph said to them, these Egyptians who believe in these soothsayers, do not interpretations belong to Yahweh, to God? Please tell them to me. He's making a, a declaration. Whatever the interpretation is, there's only one who knows it. It's the true God. It's my God. Not your gods, not the gods of the dream interpreters you're looking for. Anything we might know about God comes from Him. We should be humble and recognize He's giving God the glory. He's not saying, hey, I'm a dream teller. Just give it to me. I think Joseph's grown a lot. I don't think he was wrong by telling his brothers their dreams, his dreams, but he wasn't careful in how he did it. Now he's thinking as an older man who's been through some things, and he's going to still be truthful, but he gives them pause to recognize, whatever I tell you next is from the true and living God, Yahweh, not the made-up ones of Egypt. And this is true in general. All interpretations that are true and real, they're God's interpretations. Please tell them to me is a way of saying, and I know that God. I know Yahweh. So tell me. He has concern for these prisoners. He sees their well-being. He knows why they're struggling. Do not interpretations belong to God. God is the one who's in control. Only God could tell what's true. That's why he says what he says. Calvin captures what Joseph is doing. He does not, Joseph that is, therefore boast in his own quickness or clear-sightedness, but wishes only to be known as the servant of God. And that should be true of the people of God when we share his word. We are mere servants of the word of God. We deliver what he says. And it's especially true for preachers and teachers to deliver what God says accurately, just as he says it. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph, reliant upon God, and so he was postured to trust his word, whatever it would be. Remember, the events of the future belong to God alone. Therefore, if that's true, if we know God exists and he oversees all things, then we could trust whatever he says. Dreams, a big part of pagan religious practice. And here, Joseph, coming in that context, speaks in a very authoritative way, but in a way, in a way that depends upon God giving the correct interpretation. Now, I want you to notice when he gives the interpretations, there are two different ways that the recipients, how they receive what he says. And I don't think it's meant to be overlooked. It's, it's, it's subtle, but it's clearly there. So after he declares that, that the true God is the one who gives interpretations, please tell them to me because we're going to seek the true God for the answers. It says in verse 9, so in light of what he said, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. He believed Joseph. Okay, well, in that light, then let me tell you what my dream is. In my dream, there's a vine before me. The vine, there's three branches. It budded, it blossomed, grapes came. Pharaoh's cup's in my hand. I crushed the grapes and gave it to Pharaoh. Now, Joseph says, we don't know how long it took for the interpretation. Could have been right then. Could have been, I don't know, hours later. The Lord reveals to Joseph what the symbolism means. Verse 12, then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office. That means 
He's in a downcast position in prison, but he'll lift his head up. He'll now be restored. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Joseph is so sure this is the right interpretation that he sees fit to make a request that's reasonable. Look what he says in verse 14. This doesn't, by the way, mean he doesn't trust God. But see, that's the thing. Yes, God is in control, but God uses means, and he sees an opportunity. I just gave an accurate, I'm confident this is an accurate interpretation. When it comes true, don't forget me. Verse 14, only remember me when it's well with you, when things are going good and you're back restored. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house. And then we see a a clear explanation that he understands what's happened to him on the human level. For I was indeed, verse 15, stolen, stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And the pit here is synonymous with prison, prison, pit. It's interesting. He was in one pit and goes to another pit. And here he is 10 years on. But he's so confident the dream will come true, he goes and asks for this favor. Maybe this is God's provided means for him to leave the prison. This is my chance, and he acts upon it. Now, in contrast, look at the baker's response. Now, I, I hope I'm not reading too much into say. They didn't both say, hey, me first. Give me my interpretation first. I think that's what I might do. But the cupbearer, so he hears it, tell me what it is. The chief baker, though, look at there was his response, verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, do you catch the subtle difference? It wasn't because of what Joseph said about God being the interpreter. Instead, it was, hey, that was a pretty good interpretation. Maybe I can get one. He's in a good mood. Remember, they think in terms of, hey, the fortune teller will tell me what I really want. He's in a good mood today. Let me get one from you now. Can I get an interpretation? That's how he's speaking, not as a believer in what Joseph just said, but rather, hey, just what it says. He saw that the interpretation was favorable. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, the top baskets, all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds kept eating it out. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from your body, from you, and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Obviously, this is brutal, but it's even more brutal when you think of it in its Egyptian context. The Egyptians believe that once a person died physically, there was the soul hovered around the body, and that that's why they did their, their mummification and their careful burials and buried them with different stuff for the afterlife. But to do this would mean you would have no body, and it would scatter your soul. It was the ultimate kind of cursing. This is a hard truth to deliver if you're Joseph. And remember, Joseph wants to get out of prison. He's going to tell one of the officers of Pharaoh this harsh truth. This could cost him. But he must maintain fidelity to what God has revealed. He must deliver God's word just as it is. This is one of the biggest scourges in the history of the church, is to have pastors and teachers who do not deliver what God says, but rather deliver what they think the people want to hear. Calvin said, prophets and teachers must not hesitate by their teaching to inflict a wound on those whom God has sentenced to death. All love to be flattered, he says. Hence, the majority of teachers, this is Calvin writing in the 1600s, the 1500s, excuse me, hence the majority of teachers desiring to yield to the corrupt wishes of the world, they adulterate the word of God. 
Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Even to you, the people of God, give God's message regardless of the response. Once again, Calvin says that the job of the preacher and the prophet is to tell you the truth as God has told it to them, even when it's unpleasant. People sometimes ask, what is expository preaching? It doesn't mean just going through the books. That's true. Expository preaching means a commitment to make the message of the sermon what the message of the text is. That's the point. God owns the meaning of the text. Our preaching should be like this. Joseph knew his God. He knew his promises. He knew his commandments. And if God said it, even if it was hard, he knew he had to say it. Because remember, we have to know God's special revelation. That's how one of the main ways we'll know is the people of God when it's preached clearly and directly. And of course, it will come in times and places, whenever they may be, where some of what is said will rail against what is popular. Thank God. Thank God he gives us his word in those times. Joseph credits God with the meaning. It's not his own special craftiness. He didn't make it up. If God says it, you can be sure of it. Paul writes this to the Corinthians much later when he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. As a final point, I want you to see, in Joseph, we also have something on display here. In Joseph, in his example here, we remember the importance of patience and belief regarding God's word and promises and the timing of it. Very practical stuff for us. You know, Joseph made a very reasonable request of the cupbearer. He'd been in jail for some time, some years we would imagine. He was a slave before that. And he has this chance, and he says in verse 14, Remember me, when you get into Pharaoh's house, don't forget who told you this dream. And it came to pass. And of course, the cupbearer saw that it all came to pass. He saw what happened with the baker. For some reason, though, he doesn't relay it. He forgets it, the text says. Certainly, another chance gone for Joseph to see freedom. I'm sure that Psalm 13, had it been written in Joseph's day, would have resonated. How long, O oh Lord? How long will you forget me? That's what David says in, jo in Psalm 13. How long will you hide your face from me? Joseph says to his God. Says in verse 21 and 22 of our passage, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He hanged the chief baker. Verse 23, brutal words to read when you're thinking of Joseph. Yet, even after that, telling that particular detail, getting that interpretation just right, proving the hand of God was upon him. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. People will forget you faster than you can imagine, but your God will never forget you. It may seem that God is not aware of your circumstances, but he absolutely 100% is. We may feel like God doesn't care, but he most certainly does. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life, and it's part of his plan for your life. It's to your 
lapse here before the butler remembers in his opportunity to tell Pharaoh that's all this time for him to think, and he's got to grow in patience. He has to grow in trust. It may not make sense at the moment. God has reasons for what he's doing in your life at this moment. For Joseph, all of this proves to be preparation for his future dream interpretation that will have even greater impact. It's preparation for his future management that millions will depend on. Proven faithful in the small things, God entrusts him with bigger things. Joseph turns to God in his time of need, not himself. God strengthens Joseph's faith by having him learn this patience. It's the the lesson I don't like the most. But he always does it this way. Kent Hughes says so well, the experience of delay is written large in the lives of God's greats. Abraham long waited for a son, you remember? Moses, 40 years of preparation in the desert. David's anointing as a boy, and then the long years of delay in the fields of Judea, and then the flight from Saul and hiding in the cave of Adullam. Edmund says, and this is a great statement, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. And that's what's happening to Joseph. He's being polished by God. So here, chapter 40, we leave Joseph after all this, and he's still in the prison. You know, the Old Testament tells a very straightforward, clear-to-read history of God's unfolding plan of redemption, the whole of the Old Testament. It's very obvious and explicit. It's overt. The seed of the woman is going to eventually continue through. God will preserve all the way to the beginning of the New Testament when the seed comes forth in the person of Christ. You can see that beautiful storyline. But there are also themes that God weaves throughout that bolster or reinforce the message of the coming Messiah. It's a secondary uh, approach. It's thematic. It's typological, but you can see it there. What I mean by type, I mean a shadow of the Christ to come in the events and in the people that unfold in the Old Testament. Think about it. Noah was a righteous man in a time of unbelief. It pictures Christ. And then he provides this ark by God's commands. He obeys God, and the ark is provided. Then the ark itself, uh, comparable to what Jesus does for us, with God's judgment all around, if you're on the ark, if you're in Christ, you are safe. Abraham and Isaac picture God the Father offering God the Son. But also there's a picture there of the father about to sacrifice the son and then the intervention of a substitute. Jesus, our substitute. The lamb is used as a symbol of Christ, a type of Christ that needs to be sacrificed, the perfect lamb, pictures of. David is a type of Christ also. This benevolent king compared to all those other kings, including Saul before him. A king with a heart for God and a mission to protect the people of God and the glory of God. Well, Jesus is the King of kings who gives perfect security and perfect protection to his people and brings perfect glory to the Father. And here we have Joseph. I mentioned some of the connections last week, but think now on this story. You have a righteous man who's sold out by his brothers, took the form of a servant. So many parallels we've seen already. He battled false accusations and was made to endure an unjust punishment, maybe even unto death. But he always spoke the true word of God, no matter his circumstance. Then, at his lowest moment, he has these two guys placed with him, two criminals with Joseph. One seemed to believe 
and lived. The other did not and was lost. It reminds me of, or at least it parallels to some degree, what we see happen in Jesus' life. In Luke 23, we read, Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified with him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, these words echo, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus won't forget you. One believed God's word and was saved. One did not and was lost. Do you believe the word of the gospel? Do you? Do you believe the word of God, his special revelation about how you can be right with him? How you are a sinner and deserve God's just punishment, but he has made a way for you to have that punishment taken by somebody else, by Jesus himself. Do you believe that good news or do you refuse that good news? Are you the cupbearer or are you the baker? Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is rich and it is true. Your word lifts us up and directs us. I pray that our contemplations of this episode in Joseph's life would serve to encourage our trust in you, our dependence in you, our belief in your sure word and glorious gospel, and that your Holy Spirit would build our faith and grant us greater obedience to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.